Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. There is something about the, the Western interaction with Buddhism is kind of basically sort of consumerism is sort of lurking in the background. And we think about cultures as things we can use to make us feel better. And there's a sense in which, you know, yoga is, has been sort of appropriated from India as a way. In, and, and this is, I'm, I'm stating this, you know, uh, with my eyebrow raised, but there is a lot of good in this kind of appropriation. You know, you, you, the Beatles went to India, they bring back Indian music, ideas about the, the East, and then a lot of people got interested and then went in and began to study real Hinduism and real Buddhism. So there, the path could be maybe a popular kind of narcissistic path at first, but it could take you to the real thing. And I, I like to think this is how I discovered uh, Eastern thought and real Buddhism was that I, I came to it through this kind of American or Western popularization. Um, but it's true that then people think of things like meditation as just a kind of a little exercise to make us feel better. Um, and then they, they forget that it's this huge culture uh, that's doing all these other things. And I think the idea that we're, we're just serving our own narcissistic uh, needs or craving is, is really counter to Buddhism because the Buddha said, you know, the goal, the way to liberate yourself in this world is to overcome your craving. And if we're just treating these religious traditions and ideas as just feeding our craving, you know, our, our, our mobile apps on our phones to sort of do spiritual meditation, is this helping or is this just making a part of our distraction culture? And that's a worry to me. Religion is Promethean. Like far, it is capable of great good and also destruction. At this moment in history, its destructive power may seem dominant, flashing out like bright yellow flames. The emotive words of American philosopher, writer and teacher Stephen Asma from his new book, Why We Need Religion, published by Oxford University Press. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is the value of religion? And does religion help humans survive and flourish? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with American philosopher, writer and teacher Stephen Asma, who argues in Why We Need Religion, that the positive dimensions of religion outweigh the negative and that religion offers frameworks that give us value. Stephen goes on to state that religion, like art, has direct access to our emotional lives in ways that science does not. So what is the role of religion in society and does it have a future? Hello, my name is uh, Dr. Stephen Asma, and I'm a professor of philosophy at Columbia College in Chicago, and I'm also a fellow of the Research Group in Mind, Science, and Culture at the Columbia College. And um, my interests are sort of divided up between uh, philosophy of biology and life science and evolution theory on the one hand, and Buddhism and uh, religion on the other hand. So my publications tend to sort of chart those two directions. Um, hopefully at some point they'll meet in the middle. But I've written a number of books. My 10th book comes out actually in the spring, which is a, a book for Harvard called The uh, Emotional Mind. Um, uh, last year I put out a book on the evolution of the imagination uh, with the University of Chicago Press. And um, the topic we're going to talk about today is the um, 
Why We Need Religion, which is a book I've just published with Oxford University Press. Really well done on the book, Stephen. I have to say it was a very challenging read, uh, very spacious in some parts, but you argue your points brilliantly and um, you you make quite a grand case. So hats off to you on that point. Um, it's a very uh, controversial title, I have to say, Why We Need Religion. And on that point, I might ask you, what is religion? How do you define it? Yeah, this is a contentious issue, as, as everyone knows, I think. Um, you know, one way to tackle it is, uh, you know, in traditional philosophy is to give some very precise definition and then see whether or not X or Y or Z fits that definition. And that's not really my approach. I've been influenced more by a philosopher, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who says, well, you know, language is as language does, and I feel the same way about religion. You know religion when you see it. It's a set of practices. It's a set of beliefs. It uh, unifies people around a kind of um, mythology or set of scriptural texts. Um, And in in my uh, book, I'm trying to emphasize not so much the beliefs of religion, but the practices of religion. What do Buddhists do, let's say, on a weekly or monthly basis that defines them as Buddhists? What do Catholics do? Um, You know, going to Mass, getting sacraments like baptism and marriage and this kind of stuff. So I'm sort of looking at a religion as a social and particularly as an, as an emotional set of activities. So if it doesn't sound too reductive there, Stephen, is religion helpful or not? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, my argument is that um, on balance, religion is more helpful uh, if we look at it over the grand sweep of history and if we look at it um, sort of as anthropologists might. Uh, it is a kind of... Um, you know, originally it was a kind of system for trying to understand nature. But of course, the sciences came along and did a much better job at that. Uh, we got the empirical method, and we got people like Newton and Darwin and Einstein, and we don't need religion now to help us understand nature. We've got better tools for that. So then many people have argued, well, religion is at least good for uh, creating, you know, morality and creating social groups that are healthy and productive. And I think that's right. This is the sort of argument that people like uh, Emil Durkheim would have given, or um, even Freud, who was not a believer, thought that religion was helpful for morality. Um, I think that's probably true, but the argument of my book is that it, that wouldn't work unless religion was also very good at emotional management. So in my book, I'm sort of going through each chapter, looking at the emotions and trying to see how does religion help us manage our emotional life. Well, let's look at some of the big emotions that people could feel on a daily basis, whether it's anxiety, fear, rage, anger, whatever it is, or possibly that wonderful state of awe. How does religion help us manage our emotional lives? Like, I know you argue somewhere in your introductions that it has um, religion has adaptive benefits for emotional management. So I'm just wondering, um, how does that all pan out in real terms? Yeah, the I guess one way to think about the the argument I'm making is that it's a kind of Darwinian defense of religion, which might seem ironic (laughs) given the history there. But uh, I am uh, influenced by the kind of work that's been done in um, what's called affective neuroscience over the last 20 years. And one of my um, sort of mentors was the great uh, Dr. Jak Panksepp, who was really the father of emotional neuroscience. And he discovered seven basic um, emotional systems that we share with the mammals, things like lust and rage, care, um, fear, uh, stuff we would just automatically recognize, but other things too, like play. Um, 
and we have a s- sort of similar brain circuitry, and the same sort of neurotransmitters are activated during things like laughter or fear that are activated in, in a rat or a primate um, or a squirrel. And so these are basically the kinds of systems that we had long before we had rational brains. If you think about the emotional mind, it's been sort of under construction for 200 million years since the rise, since the beginning of mammals. Now, how, lo- how old is the rational mind? That's a very recent um, evolution. The lang- language and reason and uh, th- that kind of neocortical brain is only, you know, like a, f- a couple hundred thousand years old at best. So my argument is that the emotions evolved to help us solve all kinds of problems. If you have fear, then you get away from predators and you save your life. If you have care or love, it glues you together with another person, and this helps you basically survive and procreate. And you can go through all the emotions like this. And what I noticed was um, that religion, uh, whether it's the sort of familiar Western stuff, or as I I think you and I share an interest in Cambodia and Buddhism, uh, if you look at Buddhism, when when I was living in Cambodia, I noticed that people really turned to their religion when they were suffering. And there's a lot of suffering in places like Cambodia. And I noticed that, in a way, religion was very helpful in in helping them manage these emotions. So, for example, you're basically, uh, religion reduces stress. There's a lot of uh, psychological research to show this. It uh, consoles us when we've lost a loved one. It helps. There's been some studies to show that it helps with depression. It certainly glues together communities and gives identity. It provides meaning um, and hope through imagination and sort of uh, stories of religion uh, and even some of the magical thinking, I guess. And it even, I mean, it, it even like provides surrogates for things like love and companionship if, if we've sort of had dysfunctions like that. So there's lots of ways in which uh, religion can help us with our emotions. Can I ask you a personal question, Stephen, if it's not too direct? How do you feel about death, and do you fear it? Uh, I suppose, you know, sometimes I do. (laughs) I'm just like everyone else, but uh, I suppose I've thought about it more than the average person in the sense that my my degree is in philosophy, and, you know, philosophers were notoriously sort of morbid types. Um, And so I've definitely done a lot of thinking about death, and... um, I, it's funny, you know, I was, in, I was in Italy not too long ago and walking around and uh, the aesthetic of Catholicism really uh, <laughs> resonates with my childhood. And it's pretty morbid stuff. If, if you're not, if you get a little distance on it and you see there's a lot of death in Catholic imagery, in the stories of Catholicism, but also in Buddhism, there's a very strong emphasis on the impermanence of all things. So um, just as the Buddha says, you know, all things are impermanent. And Buddhist monks and nuns often spend time meditating on images of, of corpses, and even statues of rotting corpses are sort of meditational objects for Buddhist monks. So I've done a number uh, of these kinds of meditations, and, and I think about it a lot. I don't think I fear it so much. Um, I, I think what a lot of people fear about death is, you know, painful death, pain, suffering, uh, but not existing is not too frightening to me. Um, and in that sense, I guess, uh, I'm, I'm hoping maybe the philosophy has done some good <laughs> good for me. But, you know, the existentialists said, if you think about death and you 
if you think about death and you get it in mind every day, then um, it will, in some sense, help you prioritize your life. And, and in a sense, it will make you live each day in a more authentic fashion. It's an interesting take. But you, you quote two very um, prominent thinkers, um, one uh, Christopher Hitchens and the other being um, the philosopher Sam Harris. Sam Harris stated that without death, the influence of faith-based religions will be unthinkable. And you mentioned Christopher Hitchens, who, who wrote something on the lines of religion will not die out until we get over our fear of death. It's an interesting route way into looking at why we believe, possibly why we pray and, um, and all the cultural practices around it though, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. That I mean, many people, including myself, were you know um, influenced by the the rise of these you know the new atheism um, in the last probably ten years or so. And people like Hitchens are quite eloquent um, in articulating what he, what he thinks is wrong with religion. And some of their criticisms, I think, are are valid. But I think um, somebody who says, well. Uh, religion is for trying to get over our fears uh, in life it is either not suffered very much or has a naive view, <laughs> I think, of human vulnerability. Because, um, for example, Hitchens says, well, uh, if since religion, he says, is false, and, and by this I think he means, you know, science doesn't does not corroborate the claims of religion, then any consolation you get from this is false consolation. And I find this to be silly. Um, just consolation cannot be true or false. You either feel better or you don't. It's not the kind of thing that is true or false. It, is a, it can be strong, it can be weak, it can be um, helpful, uh, but basically if I feel bad and then religion helps me feel better, then um, it isn't true or false. I simply feel better. And what that means from a psychological and even an evolutionary point of view, is that I am now going to be able to function better. So I tell this story in the book of a, I met a, a young man at one of my lectures several years ago, and he said that um, I, I had been sort of beating up on religion in this lecture, um, saying, you know, it, it, like Hitchens would. And then afterwards, this, this young man came to me and he said, well, you know, my mother... Um, he has a small family. It was basically him, his brother, a sister, and then he had a single uh, mother who took care of the family. And very sad story, his brother was uh, horribly murdered, stabbed to death. And, um, when, and, when, and the perpetrator was never caught. And when this happened, his mother went into a deep, uh, understandable uh, spiral of depression so that she couldn't even get out of bed or off the couch and could not function. And it was her religion that slowly sort of brought her back from the brink of total nihilistic despair. And the church started coming over and engaging in the kind of rituals of um, consolation. The stories were told, the magical thinking was there, and pretty soon she started to believe that she would see her son again in the afterlife and that his body would be made perfect again. And all of these things got her back to a state of emotional well-being where she could take care of the family again and raise the other two children. Now, I, I find it obnoxious for the critics of religion to say, oh, okay, you, you know, this is a sign of intellectual weakness and uh, cowardice because she's afraid of death. And I just think that when critics make that argument, they're not thinking it through carefully. Oftentimes what people are afraid of is not their own death, but they're, they're worried about the death of their loved ones 
it's a much bigger uh, project. It's not sort of cowardice like it's been, I think, portrayed. That's just my view. You pitch up a very interesting question. You you um, you pitch up if we eliminated religious funerals, would people be better off or worse in terms of grief management? It's a very interesting question. Now I know that you you state in the book that you are agnostic, and from reading between the lines and how you write about Buddhist practice and ritual, it seems that you're definitely leaning in that direction. But I'm just wondering, can you talk me through what the research you have uh, done has revealed on that point? Yeah. Um there's been some interesting uh, work on this. Um, I suppose, uh, the, the, I guess what I was thinking of primarily were cases like in China. I lived in China on and off uh, for a few years and uh, spent some time doing some research there. And it's sort of a fascinating contrast in many ways to the West uh, because uh, religion there was uh, sort of explicitly targeted by the state um, under the under sort of Chairman Mao and the communists, there was the Great Leap Forward, and then there was the Cultural Revolution, and things like um, Buddhism were seen to be um, uh, sort of uh, elite forms of corruption. And so the communists basically tried to they they did it. They essentially elim- eliminated. They they burned down temples. They defrocked monks. They eliminated the religious rituals. And they thought, well, if we break this, we can enter into a kind of secular, modern way of thinking, and that will be good for everybody, and especially the party. And so they did things like um, they banned certain kinds of Chinese um, uh, funerary rituals. It's very common, just like in in Mexican society, um, Chinese society will have sort of certain holidays where you go to the grave of your loved ones, your ancestors, and you clean the graves and you have you eat food, and um, if someone dies who you know, then you go and you give money to the family in these red envelopes. And the state just thought, well, look, we could we could basically break this all apart. Uh, it's too much magical thinking. It takes people away from you know their de- devotion to the party, and it wastes money that could be going to the state. <laughs> and so they tried to ban this stuff, and it, it just was not effective because I think what I'm arguing in the book is the state can't take over the functions that we at the more local level uh, need. And religion is very good. It's evolved for thousands of years to help us at this more local level where it's just, you know, what does my family need? What do my neighbors need? And grieving is one of the deepest, you know, wounds that, that a human being can have. And the state is just not good at helping us through that process, but religion is in large part because of the the stories of religion activate the emotions and the solidarity of religious uh, social life uh, basically gives us the kind of um, endorphins, oxytocin, dopamine, the kind of neurochemistry that we need to overcome grief. And so that's what I develop in the book. And what do you say to people who would say that possibly, you know, whether you, let's say, go to a Catholic funeral or not, or whatever tradition you're looking at, that it's all a bit creepy, you know, the incense, all the, um, you know, um, all the different stuff around it, that it's just a bit heavy going? Yeah, so that's, I mean, I grew up as a, a, when I was young, I was an altar boy, my brothers and I, and so I've been to many funerals, Catholic funerals, uh, served them. And uh, there is something sort of macabre and creepy and heavy about them. But the, my argument would be that, in a way, it's the things that are happening 
before the service begins and the things that are happening after the service and maybe the night before if there's a wake. It's, it's all the stuff that's social around the Mass that's even more important than the Mass. Now, that might seem heretical <laughs> to people, and especially coming from a guy who's in praise of religion, but I'm saying that in a way, people think that the religious funeral is about the Mass and what the priest is saying, but I would argue that's that's actually not the, the main ingredient of the emotional therapy. It's the social interaction that you're having with your friends and family. It's the it's the eating of a meal afterwards. It's the drinking the night before. It's it's those kinds of activities that actually help the person who's grieving. The mass can be beautiful. It can be uh, helpful, and no doubt it is in many cases. But it's it's really not the central point of the emotional therapy. I was very interested in um, what you said about uh, belief and belief systems. You write that many people take a fictional approach to God. They accept the existence of God, but they do not really believe God exists. And you go on to quote the American philosopher William Irvin, who uh, stated they accept that God is love, that God has shaped human history and guides human lives. But when pinned down, they admit that they do not readily believe in the actual existence of God. Their considered judgment is that the existence of God is not literally true but it is uh, mythologically true. I thought that was very interesting and it does resonate, doesn't it? Yes, I think it does resonate. Um, Many of us uh, are living in this sort of middle territory in between the extremism. You know, we know that there are atheistic extremists who think, you know, religion is terrible. And we know there are religious extremists who think that, um, you know, everything in the Bible is literally true or in Islam, maybe they're jihadi Um, practitioners or something. We know there's lots of fundamentalism and extremism, but in this middle territory is where most of us uh, live. That's where the mainstream religious practitioner lives. And for us, um, whether or not God is literally true is is sort of secondary to the the lived life of of religion, which is the practices that we engage in. we get together and celebrate religious festivals and holidays, and nobody de- at those things debates whether or not God exists. There are many people who have doubts about um, whether God exists because we live in a very scientifically literate age, but it doesn't detract from the, the consolation that religion gives them and the way in which religion gives them a meaningful life. I mean, it doesn't matter in a way whether or not God I- I- exists for me to get all kinds of moral and spiritual inspiration from the Bible. It's filled with wonderful stories. I mean, one of my favorite stories is the the story of the prodigal son. You learn a lot about human psychology, about what it means to pursue a life of hedonism and pleasure, what it means to forgive at a really deep level as the father forgives the son, what it's like to be jealous, which is how the brother sees the prodigal son comes back and gets the fatted calf, and the brothers sort of jealous and angry. That is a that's a wonderful morality play that teaches us not it's not just literature, it actually helps us think and solve our own moral problems. When we're struggling to forgive someone in our family, this kind of a story comes to us and gives us a model or a paradigm to help us do it. And in that sense, religion can be extremely valuable whether or not the, the claims uh, the metaphysical claims are true. 
You visited uh, Stephen the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Um, I'm just wondering what was that like and was it a bit surreal? Because um, I looked it up in the internet to see kind of just get a feel for the space itself. And um, it's best described as a biblical theme park, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a pretty amazing place that uh, I highly recommend uh, people visit um, because it's a very strange piece of Americana culture. It is like a, a natural history museum that you would find in any major city, but you go into it and you realize that it isn't just the dinosaurs here and the evolution of mammals here. It's the actual story of the book of Genesis in a kind of museum format. And these are uh, Christian fundamentalists from the American South who believe that God made the world in, in six days and that the you know, the Grand Canyon was formed in two weeks during a flood and all kinds of stuff that we would consider to be scientifically laughable nowadays. Um, but there it is on display. There's Adam and Eve are sort of um, next to the dinosaurs. There are, uh, they consider the Noah to have um, brought, you know, literally saved, you know, two of every kind of animal. And I had the, the, um, opportunity to interview the actual director of the museum, the Creation Museum, a, a man named Ken Ham. And Ken, I asked Ken Ham, um, how could you know, Noah get, get the dinosaurs on the ark? Because he, he thought that, um, that Noah had taken dinosaurs on the ark. This is it's a sort of a strange form of creationism. And he said, oh, it's no problem. You know, um, Noah was able to take uh, the dinosaurs on the ark when they were babies. So there was plenty of room for them. They weren't full-sized uh, dinosaurs. And I just thought that was a kind of genius move on his part. <laughs> and I couldn't really uh, counter it. Uh, but yeah, this is a whole cultural um, experience that, that maybe your listeners aren't familiar with, which is a sort of American fundamentalism. And it's a community that is, that is very active. They have their own news sites, museums. Um, it's pretty wealthy. And they're digging in against sort of the rise of a secular scientific uh, society. It sounds like a very interesting uh, space, no doubt. But on the other hand, um, does it not in kind of indoctrinate to a degree? And surely we should be all um, engaging in on questions and dialoguing and just general spacious sense of um, how we go about religion rather than just kind of come down heavy with all this stuff. Yeah, I think what's uh, unfortunate about the Creation Museum is that um, is when I think about the kids who grow up in these families, because this is a kind of indoctrination that they they don't have the rational skills or the educational background to assess it properly or to look at it within a context of ideas. And so I do find this uh, sort of upsetting in the sense that the families that are engaging in this kind of Christian fundamentalism in the South are basically isolating their kids uh, so that they don't encounter uh, evolutionary science. They don't encounter uh, real examinations of other alternative religions. And instead, they're getting a very ideological propaganda version of uh, reality. Um, now, I guess religion has done this, you know, in all kinds of places and at all kinds of time. But most of us are living in a very globalized world where we're interacting with different people of different faiths and different um, ideologies. And I think that's all to the good and healthy. So I do worry about this kind of heavy propaganda education, 
where the kid comes in and because of the, the space of it being a museum and it feels like it's authoritative knowledge, they think, oh, this must be true, when in fact it's, it's really considered to be scientific bunk, basically. I presume you've done a lot of meditation because uh, throughout the book you quote some uh, interesting Buddhist and Christian uh, practices and you go into um, you go in a big way into uh, the idea of mental training and uh, meditative approaches and techniques. So can you talk me through that? Yeah, I've done um, a, a little bit of meditating, maybe a fair amount. It depends now, I guess, who you compare it with. I, I understand you do a lot of meditating yourself. Um, I've sort of done most of my meditating in the Theravada tradition of insight meditation or Vipassana, and, but I've, I've also done some Zen meditation, and when I travel, I've traveled in Thailand, in Laos, in Cambodia, Vietnam, and in various parts of China, and, and even in Bhutan quite recently, and when I go to these places, I will try to at least do a meditation uh, session uh, if I can. And so I've sort of experimented with other things. I find um, a fairly simple kind of mindful meditation to be valuable. Um, There are these sort of recommendations that the Buddha gives about these steps of what he calls mindfulness. The the Pali word for this is sati. And I just try to sit in a quiet place, try to um, focus my mind either on my breath or a candle or some object. And then I try to... um, block out, you know, the external perception of the world. But then uh, if I can do this for long enough, I also try to then quiet the internal voice of, um, you know, we're always talking to ourselves. The, the mind is always, the Buddhists call this the monkey mind, where we're always just chatting, you know, uh, what's on TV tonight? What, what I should have said this to my boss yesterday. Uh, what, what is my kid going to do well in the piano <laughs> uh, recital? There's just this constant narrative happening, and one of the goals of meditation is to sort of quiet that voice in your head. And that, um, you know, I think most people are aware that mindful meditation is having a kind of renaissance or a kind of huge interest in the West because people are noticing that it's it's helpful, it's therapeutic, um, it, it's been shown to be uh, useful in schools, in prisons, in businesses. Um, so I'm very much in support of that, uh, but I do also, in the book, try to show that meditation techniques like this are tied to a much bigger cultural project in Buddhist countries. It has to do with things like um, ritual and devotional behaviors, and the average Buddhist living in Cambodia or in Thailand is not meditating. That oftentimes meditation is something that the monks or the nuns are doing, but lay people are doing more devotional practices at the temple. So that's a big difference, and I think Westerners don't quite uh, understand that about Buddhism. They think everybody's meditating. You write, the Buddha is not interested in stroking our egos, comforting us, or feeding our emotional craving. I thought that was very interesting, and it got me thinking that, you know, could it be argued to a degree that... um, how the West has engaged in Buddhism and the questions of Buddhist um, thinking and ideas and, um, I suppose, texts offer, um, that they've somewhat misunderstood it in some way. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I think that's a good good question. The, there is something about the, sort of the Western interaction with Buddhism is kind of, basically, it's sort of consumerism is sort of lurking in the background. And we think about cultures as things we can use to make us feel better. 
and there's a sense in which you know yoga is has been sort of appropriated from India as a way in and and this is i'm I'm stating this you know uh with my eyebrow raised, but there is a lot of good in this kind of appropriation you know you you the Beatles went to India, they bring back Indian music, ideas about the, the East, and then a, a lot of people got interested and then went in and began to study real Hinduism and real Buddhism. So there, the path could be maybe a popular kind of narcissistic path at first, but it could take you to the real thing. And I, I like to think this is how I discovered uh, Eastern thought and real Buddhism was that I, I came to it through this kind of American or Western popularization. Um, but it's true that then people think of things like meditation as just a kind of a little exercise to make us feel better. Um, and then they, they forget that it's this huge culture uh, that's doing all these other things. And I think the idea that we're, we're just serving our own narcissistic uh, needs or craving is, is really counter to Buddhism because the Buddha said, you know, the goal, the way to liberate yourself in this world is to overcome your craving. And if we're just treating these religious traditions and ideas as just feeding our craving, you know, our, our, our mobile apps on our phones to sort of do spiritual meditation, is this helping or is this just making a part of our distraction culture? And that's a worry to me. You met with a very interesting uh, Buddhist monk um, when you were in Cambodia and he said something on the lines to you that real Buddhism is too rational, not magical enough for most practicing Buddhists. And you, you go on to argue from that that if the Buddha came back today, one wonders if lay people would ask him to go away so they could return to their miracle mystery and authority. Right. That's, you know, some people could find that a little um, heavy worded and slightly offensive. But it is an interesting question to ask, and I'm sure that, you know, um, all religions you could put that at, to a degree. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And in fact, that idea, uh, I applied it to Buddhism, but in a way that that criticism comes from uh, Dostoevsky's criticism of Christianity, and, and he was doing it from the point of view of Orthodox Christianity. But yeah, to your, to your question, I think um, I spent time uh, with a monk in, in Cambodia who was educated, you know, and knows real Buddhism. And when I say real Buddhism, what I mean is it's clear from the Buddha that he was, a, he criticized the idea that you have an eternal soul within you and that that soul is going to live forever and ever. Uh, he thinks that that's a fiction that was created by Hinduism. And the Buddha thinks we need to get rid of that idea because, well, for one, there's no evidence that a permanent soul exists. And two, he thinks it will make you a less moral person to believe in a soul because you'll always be trying to protect it and get it into heaven or, or to, to a better life in reincarnation. And this will distract you from the suffering of people around you. and It will make you less compassionate. So that's the official teaching of the Buddha. But uh, this monk was telling me that if he teaches that to, the, to actual Cambodian Buddhists, lay people, you know, it will be depressing and give them despair because they they cling to this idea of a soul and the idea of a, a better life in the next life. And he even made a joke about it, you see, because the monks in, in Southeast Asia, they go around every morning and they do um, with a begging bowl, and they ask lay people to give them just some food donation from maybe the dinner the night before, or sometimes people will give um, a little bit of money, and this is what the monks have to survive on. If they don't get anything that day, they don't eat. 
Um, and so it's a very austere kind of relation, but that's the trade-off is people give offerings to the monks and then the monks help with education and spiritual guidance. And he said, well, if he, if he told them there's no soul and uh, there's no, uh, the true Buddhism, he thought, he said, well, I'll starve. Uh, if I go to get the food in the morning, people won't give me food uh, because the culture wants and needs the idea of the soul because that's the more comforting doctrine. Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cowell. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American philosopher, writer and teacher Stephen Asma about his latest book, Why We Need Religion, published by Oxford University Press, where Stephen argues Buddhism in practice is a good deal more magical than Buddhism on paper. I asked Stephen about the Buddhist concept of rebirth and where he stands on it all. Yeah, it is a little confusing, I think, because people know that there's a kind of um, rebirth in Buddhism, but then when they hear that there's no soul, uh, it's like, well, okay, what's getting reborn? And the the official doctrine on this is that um, you're made up of basically like five uh, sort of streams of energy, and these are called skandhas or khandhas, and it's like you have a body, you have perception, you have consciousness, you have will or volition. And these things uh, are basically temporarily united, and we call that Stephen Asma. <laughs> and uh, that is basically a temporary collection of these uh, forces. What happens at death is that I don't go on, but there is a continuation of this energy into other systems. So I just like this is why I think a lot of scientists like Buddhism too, is that it's very congenial with scientific notions of of how energy, you know, goes out of my body at death and heat goes into other organisms and I feed other organisms and, and there's a kind of continuation of energy. So there's rebirth in this sense in Buddhism and this is and the the only sort of odd part about it, I think, from the scientific point of view, is that my moral activity goes into the future as well. So there's a rebirth in terms of karma. If I was a good person, I send good energy into the future. If I was a bad person, I send bad energy into the future. So the Buddha says there is rebirth in that sense, but there is no core soul that goes on to the next life. In that sense, it was a very uh, revolutionary idea. And this is not well understood, I think, but even by practicing Buddhists in Buddhist countries. Uh, but it's very clear from the scripture. That's the philosophical idea. And so, yeah, I think this is a, uh, if we could learn, maybe teach this doctrine a little more, uh, it would be helpful because it shows how um, compatible Buddhism and modern science can be. Do you think that type of thinking requires a lot of discipline? I'm sure that's true. And that might be why there isn't going to be a lot of this kind of thinking. There is a, there's a sense, and this is one of the things I like about uh, religion, um, is that it almost has these different uh, domains. Like in Christianity, there's a domain for the philosophers. And we, you know, if you're philosophically inclined, you want to read things like uh, St. Uh, Augustine or St. Aquinas. Or, you know, uh, in Buddhism, you want to read what's called the Abhidharma, which is called the Higher Dharma, and that's sort of for philosophers. But then there's the stories of Christianity in the Bible. And in Buddhism, there's the stories of the sutras. And that, this stuff is for lay people, people who, you know, 
mothers, fathers, uh, kids, people working jobs, maybe trying to make a business, um, people immersed in the daily complexities of surviving, they can't do philosophy. They don't have the luxury of doing philosophy. They're just trying to get through uh, life from day to day. And that's where some of these other aspects of religion really come to the rescue. And that's why I've become a fan of them. I, mean, I think early on as a philosopher, I thought, oh, what is all this, these funny stories and rituals? It's the philosophy that matters. And now I feel, having raised a kid, or you know, still raising a kid and, and struggling, you know, as an older person, I, I've come to realize, oh, you know, I need help on a daily basis. And that's what uh, some of the religious stories and scriptures and the rituals can help us with. But Stephen, you could argue that, you know, you could um, walk into a, um, a city museum, let's say, for example, and look at this magical uh, painting. And that could offer you the space, the hope, the perspective that you need to carry you through to the next day. Or you could hear this uh, stunning piece of music or you could take part in some sports game or whatever it is. And, you know, some people would say that, you know, religion is one of the many things in our lives that can kind of capture our energy and, and, and push us forward. So what do you say yeah, to that? A, yeah, that's a great point. And I, I, I think that, that is, this is a, a great um, uh, point that I think religion and art share, uh, and I suppose even sports too, uh, that it helps, it gives us meaning. And I think art is a kind of surrogate religion in the sense it is also a form of emotional management. We take inspiration, like you said, from... Like one of the most, you know, instead of paying a therapist, I listen to Johann Sebastian Bach and feel like way better. And so I know what you mean. And I think many of us um, have gone in this direction. And I'm not dismissing that or criticizing it. I think in many ways, uh, if that works for you, great. I will point out uh, sort of two things, though, that I think are important about uh, why religion is, in a sense, uh, better. One is, I think we have to think of it um, in terms of global meaning. And many people, uh, it's the belief that the Jesus was God or that, um, you know, Muhammad is the, is the great messenger. That helps ground the emotional um, uh, therapies. And that kind of metaphysics is not there in art. You either, you know, feel good looking at a Monet painting or you don't. But it's not a grand, grand claim about cosmic meaning, whereas religion has that component. And so many people have suggested, well, and I, I, I'm sort of I find this compelling too, that that is the what you need in some of the most emotionally fraught times of your life. These big sort of metaphysical ideas seem to be more helpful. And secondly, um, most people living on the planet do not have the luxury that I have which is I could go down to the Art Institute of Chicago and see some amazing paintings, and then tomorrow I could go to the uh, opera house and see an opera, and I could go to, to see a rock band play. That whole life of cultural, sort of culture vulture <laughs> life of um, enjoying the arts and getting ther- emotional therapy is not available to the developing world. They have religion and religion only, um, which is a sort of huge part of their lives. They, they don't have access to culture in the way that, uh, that, that some of us do living in the, the developed West. So in that sense, I'm, I'm arguing, you know, religion can be very valuable to them. And uh, that's just different from our situation.
Tell me, um, as a you know, professor of philosophy in one of the um, eminent um, um, academic institutions in um, in America, it must be quite uh, challenging to bring out a book entitled "Why We Need Religion." And possibly some of your students, and possibly also your colleagues, might think you're a little deluded in some way, or maybe you've underestimated your risk-taking ability or not. I don't know. <laughs> but um, it, you know, because you know, we've seen it in um, you know, if we look at the at the Catholic. Uh, community in the Catholic faith, you know, whether it's in uh, senior uh, bishops in America, in Australia, in uh, Chile, all across the world and questions have been asked and people have stood down. The Pope has got um, some terrible criticism over the past while and and reasonable and tough questions have been put to him that needed to be put to him. Then if we move over to, you know, the Islamic world um, or if we look at uh, the Jewish tradition, lots of um, people are arguing against religion and are calling out that we need a more peaceful world. Part of that peacefulness is, means that we need to be living in a more um, less religiously divided world in a more secular world. So how does a philosopher uh, um, and uh, sit with all of that? Because it must kind of creep at you in some way. It must itch at you in some way when we mm. see all the malpractice um, in different types of institutions and we see all the messy stuff and some of the shameful behaviour. So what do you say to all of that? Yeah, I mean it's a great question, um, and I I'm not I'm not trying to put myself in a position where I defend some of the really horrific, uh, as you said, shameful behaviors of our you know clerics and the church generally. I mean, uh, Catholic, the, the Catholic sexual assault uh, you know um, crisis is disgusting, and there's no way uh, I would want to defend this kind of stuff. It is a real problem of institutionalized religion. Uh, but I don't think um, in the case of, say, Catholicism or in the case of uh, Islam, I don't think it's the religion that has made people into sexual predators or into jihad, violent um, sort of uh, missionaries. Uh, these people are basically using religion as a kind of uh, cover and a kind of justification for either their um, sort of uh, mental illness or their aggressive grievances. And this, I think, has been confused up somehow with the idea that, that religion has made them this way. And I just, I, I think this is false. If you look at something like Islam, for example, what we hear in the news is about the worst kind of extremism, jihad-type uh, violence, and it, it is horrific. But there's 1.7, uh, I think, billion Muslims worldwide. And we, there's a lot of people practicing Islam. And most people would estimate the, the sort of number of extremists, and it's hard to get this as an exact number, but most people from within the tradition would estimate the number of extremists to be about 3%. Now, that can still be a number because 1.7 billion Muslims is a large figure point is that we shouldn't take the extremists as the model for all religion. For example, what you hear about a lot in the United States is this group called the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, which seemed kind of like a lunatic Christian. They're just filled with hate. They're, ant they're against everybody. They're just total homophobes. They're against everything. But if you look at and they get constant coverage in the news, there's actually only about 50 people in the Westboro Baptist Church. 
And there's just millions of people practicing Christian on a daily basis in a way that is helpful to them. So I would just caution us to be mindful that, yes, these extreme cases of predatory behavior and corruption have to go. All that stuff has to be cleared out. But that's not the same as, you know, religion is evil. It's really not the same. Last question for you, Stephen, and if it doesn't sound too cheeky, um, I hope you forgive me in this one. Um, you know, you've, you, it's such an expansive read. You cover a lot of different religious practices and traditions in the book, and it's um, such a worthwhile read. But I was just wondering, given all the time you spent in, whether it's Buddhist countries and in Christian countries, etc., and all your travel and so on, what haven't you figured out with regard to religion? You're, you're, you know, you've got a philosophical imagination. You are a philosopher. So surely you were left with some uh, tough questions. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fair question. And it's, uh, it's one I don't, I don't get very often. So it's, it gives me a little pause. But I would say um, what, what really intrigues me now is it's something we touched on earlier, which is um, w- w- wouldn't religions be better if they were more like uh, music? where, you know, if you're Catholic or a Protestant, it, it, wouldn't it be great if it was more like, you know, oh, you're a Beatles fan versus a Rolling Stones fan. You may have deep differences. Uh, maybe I think you're crazy for, for liking the Beatles more than the Stones, but we're not going to kill each, over, each other over that. It's really a kind of deep value that we have, but we would never come to violence over it. And I, I'm, I'm curious about exploring, like, how could we make religion more, um, you know, believed in less uh, ideologically and more like uh, the kind of dedication we have towards art. And this is something that is, it's very tempting because it seems like it would solve a lot of problems for us. And yet on the, on the other hand, because of the metaphysical beliefs of religion, it's hard to see how we could get from here to there. So that's something I'm very interested in, in continuing to think about. <laughs> 